Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome, SOS listeners. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today we are very, very privileged to have Pal Ben-Shahar as our guest. So we'll come to the interview here in a moment. Now, I met Pal at the World Trade Center building number seven in April of 2018, when a group of 50 of us that were invite only were hanging out with Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, the number one uh, executive coach in the world. Pal is one of the number one experts around happiness in the joy of leadership globally. So it's interesting in the session, Tal, or in our interview, Tal talks about, you know, what are some of the most important things that we need to think about to be successful and to be happy? But one of the things he ends the whole show about is around wellness and fitness, where we talk about that in our stress indicator and health planner, but also he said, know yourself, know who you are. Get clear about who you are. So my encouragement is when we think about CRG resources, and that is around helping you to know yourself. So what are your values? What's your personal style? You know, what are your wellness levels? What's your self-worth? When you think about learning, your learning style, uh, leadership skills, where are you at in benchmarking there? So my encouragement is, you know, take ownership. If you want to improve your happiness or the happiness of others around you, listen to this show, as well as your success and what are you thankful for? And so we'll go through it. Natal has an amazing story about his journey. He's also been a professor at Harvard. So amazing things. And now here's our interview with Dr. Hal Ben-Shahar. In April of 2017 or 2018, I had a chance to hang out with Marshall Goldsmith and a bunch of, bunch of his colleagues and individuals who have surrounded him. And one of those individuals is our guest today, Tal Ben-Shahar. And so Tal, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Ken. Great to be on your podcast. Now, Tal, you're an expert in leadership. You're an expert in life purpose. You're an expert on happiness. And we're going to get into some of that research you've done here shortly. But Tal, and you're also, you know, teach at Harvard. So very prestigious. So before all of that, Tal, tell us a little bit about your story. Where were you born and, and where did this sort of journey take you? Sure. So, Ken, first of all, I taught at Harvard. I'm no longer there. I'm right now doing uh, uh, my own freelance work. Okay. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about how, how I got to, uh, uh, to Harvard and, and, and also what I'm doing now. So I started off um, um, as an undergraduate uh, studying computer science. And I found myself in my second year, my sophomore year, doing very well academically, doing very well in sports. I played uh, varsity and then professional squash, uh, doing quite well socially and yet being very unhappy. Mm. And it didn't make sense to me. You know, I looked at my life from the outside and, and things looked great and, and people were telling me that everything was great, but from the inside, it didn't feel that way. You know, and I remember very, uh, one very cold Boston morning uh, going to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm switching uh, majors. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science and moving over to philosophy and psychology. 
And, um, and she said, why? she asked why. And I said, because I have two questions. The first question is, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I then went on to get my undergraduate degree and, uh, and then my graduate degree, all the time focusing on how can I help myself, individuals, um, families, uh, organizations, increase levels of well-being. So uh, and this, that was, that, sorry to uh, tell, it was pretty intuitive of you at that time to go from what sort of drove you to computer science to start with? Um, you know, I, I'd always been good at mathematics. Uh, you know, this was uh, so about, you know, 30 years ago, just under 30 years ago, and, and computer science was big. It was the future. Mm. Um, you know, my father is an engineer. So, you know, everything seemed to, to take me there. Uh, except for my emotional state. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for having the courage because all your work exists now because you made that choice. And we'll get into how you did that here in a moment. So continue. Thanks, uh, Tal. Yeah. And then um, I, in graduate school, uh, my, I did uh, my graduate program. It was joined between Harvard Business School and the uh, psychology department. Uh, was also focused on... Um, on um, both leadership. So I worked very closely with Warren Bennis during his three years there mm-hmm. and, uh, and worked with, um, with Philip Stone, who was um, the, one of the founders of the strength-based movement and the positive psychology uh, movement as, as a whole. And I was very fortunate to really be in the right place at the right time. I was his teaching assistant for six years while I was a graduate student and uh, when, when I graduated, he said, you know, he's about to leave, uh, retire. And he asked me whether I wanted to take over his class in, in positive psychology. So, so I did. So the, that first year when I, I became a, a lecturer at Harvard, I taught two classes. One was positive psychology, which is the science of happiness. And the other is the uh, um, leadership development. And... Um, you know, I, I taught those classes, and I remember uh, one day before uh, the first the, the first class, I was very nervous. So I asked a, a good friend of mine to meet with me and you know help me. And uh, I remember we were sitting down. And he said, "So, Tal, what are you teaching?" And I said, two classes: positive psychology, science of happiness, and then uh, and um, leadership development." And he said, "Oh, I see. So you're teaching one class on happiness and one class on unhappiness." <laughs> and I, I didn't like that. So the following year, I already taught a class on positive leadership. <laughs> okay. Well, it's interesting because we've had lots of leadership experts, you know, including Peter and others that were in the room with us in April uh, about how much work it takes to mm-hmm. you know, shift the, the leadership needle. So we'll get into that in a yeah. bit. So that's great. So you're teaching classes. How did that go? Um, so the first year I taught a class, um, positive psychology, I had uh, eight students, uh, two of them dropped out, which left me with uh, a bruised ego. Uh, the, the following year, the class grew, and by the third year, the, the class had become the, the biggest at Harvard um, because students were telling other students, you know, the roommates, teammates, mm-hmm. that the class had changed their lives. So... So, so that was wow. the class on, 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 on positive psychology, which I very much focused on the question that I asked actually in putting together that class is what would I have wanted to learn or even more so than that, what would I have needed to learn when I was an undergraduate? Mm. Um, 
and and you know of course I all based on on research but it was a very uh, practical uh, course uh, providing tools techniques well I have two kids that are about that age they just finished university my wife works as an academic coach at a university so mm-hmm. I get it where they're going through this real discovery process in that the, the quality of the answers is based on the quality of the questions. And so that's brilliant on your part, uh, Tal. So I want to just scroll back a second before we get into your current work and really help the listeners here on you know, how they can take their life to the next level. We want to serve the SOS listeners. But what about your growing up, Tal? Where did you grow up? Where were you born? And just a little bit about your family before we skip back into today's work. Uh, right, so I was uh, born and raised in Israel, uh, in a city just outside Tel Aviv. And um, growing up, my passion was uh, was playing squash. And I was uh, I was I was all, I always loved sports. Uh, you know, I was an athlete from a very young age, and at the age of eleven, I went on the squash court, and it was. Uh, Love at first sight. Uh, and, you know, I continued training. I turned professional, played at uh, the international, uh, the world circuit. Wow. Uh, so that, re- that really in many ways defined, defined my childhood. You know, I was a, I was a good student, um, but, but I wasn't a passionate student. It was only actually as, as an undergrad that I fell in love with, uh, with, with learning and, and later also with, with uh, writing. So how did you get over to the United States? Um, so at, at the age of 18, like uh, every uh, Israeli, uh, I, I enrolled in the military. I served there for, uh, for three years. And um, um, unfortunately, I, I got injured, um, not, not, as, not, not in combat or anything, but just uh, because uh, I wasn't playing as consistently as I was before. And, and then I went back to playing and went you know, then off again and on again. Uh, so I got injured, and um, I, I basically had to make a decision then um, I, to, to give up my professional aspirations. Uh, but I still wanted to play, and I still could play, just not at, at the highest uh, international levels. And, um, and I knew that um, you know, Harvard had a good squash team. They were uh, the, year, the year before, two years earlier, they were the national champs. So, so you know, that's really why I applied there. You know, I knew I knew the coach. The coach knew me. Um, it wasn't because I, I thought I would, I would certainly not end up as an academic. And uh, um, you know, I just heard of Harvard and said, you know, that that, that would be great to go there. So so I applied. Mm. And so, how did you have the courage to travel halfway around the world to come to go to school? What was yeah. sort of your background that that no. enabled you to do that? Yeah, I must say that it. At, at least at that point, it didn't take much courage because I'd been traveling a lot before. You know, I was uh, I was uh, 16 when I when I started to travel by myself around the world um, playing squash. You know, I lived uh, I lived away from home uh, from the age of 16, and then until, until the age of 18 when I when I enrolled in the military. And you know, now I look back and I think, you know, because I have, uh, you know, my, my children are uh, about that age or almost that age. And I think, uh, yeah, that, you know, it's, it's young to travel uh, around the world alone. But I didn't think it then. And I think a lot of it was because of my parents. They just didn't make a big deal out of it. You know, you, yeah, you want to play squash? Sure. Uh, you know, make the money. 
so that you can buy an, uh, a ticket and, and you know, go forth and, uh, and multiply, or preferably don't multiply, but go forth and play. Exactly. <laughs> so so, and, it's, and, it's, so it was just an adventure. It was just, it was just part of a continuation of exactly. the... Exactly. And, and, you know, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think that that's exactly the, you know, the word. It was an adventure. You know, today I know a lot of the work in um, cognitive reframing. So, for example, people going into uh, people with test anxiety, um, if they frame it as uh, threatening, they'll, of course, experience the anxiety, but just let them reframe it to challenging uh, or an opportunity or, or, or an adventure mm. and their experience of it becomes very, very different. So, so I think a lot of it was, again, on, I don't know if it, even consciously, but probably, you know, but, but my parents were framing this experience. How wonderful, you know, what a, what a great adventure. Yes. Mm. Mm. where many other parents might be fearful and then they'll pass us on to their kids. And we know the research that parents that have low self-worth or low happiness sometimes pass that on to their, their, their children as well. So, yeah, and, I, and I think today, by the way, it, it's a lot worse than it was, again, 30, uh, 35 years ago, because mm. parents today are, are even more fearful for their children, uh, very much being overprotective. And we know from a lot of the work um, in, uh, in leadership development, that the leading leaders of today are ones whose parents allowed them to fail many times, you know, so that the work by Morgan McCall, uh, the work by, um, 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 Christensen and, and, and others, uh, mm-hmm. as well as Warren Bennis pointing to the importance right. of crucibles and failures. To build resilience and, you know, Angela's work on grit grit and those items as well. So thank you, Tal, for all that. I appreciate the story. And one of the things for our listeners, and we always go into this, is say, you know, what's the person's journey? What what took them there? And I think there there are gems in there where as a parent, you frame that out and you set that up. Say, hey, no big deal. You're going to travel. You're going to play squash. You enjoy squash. You'll love that. By the way, I'm a squash player as well. I haven't played for a while. So love the game. Uh, much more dynamic than racquetball, of course, right? <laughs> You're pushing my buttons, be Yeah, I understand. Okay, okay, well, just as a fellow squash player, I'm just yeah, messing with yeah. you a little bit there. So, Tal, let's transfer, uh, let's transfer the conversation. I mean, you have a brand new book, Shortcuts to Happiness. And so congratulations on all the work you, you, you are identified as one of the number one experts globally around happiness. What are some of the things that you are discovering? So, you know, when we think about today and, you know, a lot of the work that we do around self-worth and, and life purpose as well here at mm-hmm. CRG is there's just seems to be way more people who are depressed. Now, I'm also a wellness coach, so I know that sometimes our lifestyle leads to that. But what did you discover and what are some of the contents of the book? that we can really help the listeners today, other as an individual where I can improve my own happiness or a circle of influence as a parent, as a leader, or somebody else. What are some of the, the elements that are in your new book, Shortcuts to Happiness, that we want to consider going forward today? Yeah, so, you know, a few things. Maybe I can just rewind before I go into specifically Please. into the book. I guess my first uh, discovery, which is um, at, the, at the age of you know, 20, 23, when, when I shifted from computer science to philosophy and psychology, and, and that was about the relationship between success and happiness. 
you know, I was raised with the um, very firm uh, belief, you know, with a mental schema that um, success leads to happiness. You know, if I win the, you know, the, this championship, if I gain this mm-hmm. ranking, if I get into this university, if I make so much money, if I get this, this position, um, that, that is the path to happiness. And, um, and, and it's not. I mean, the, all the research shows, uh, and again, we don't even need research for it. We just need to look around us and within us to, to recognize that success does not lead to happiness. Yes, it leads to a short-term spike in our levels of well-being, but, but it doesn't last. You know, there's research on people who have fulfilled their life dream, you know, of, uh, you know, tenure at a university. This is research by Daniel Gilbert from Harvard or, uh, or, be, or, or won the lottery and have more money than they know what to do with. And this is research by uh, Philip Brickman, who was at Northwestern. Um, and, and there's a lot of other research showing that it just, it just doesn't last. Yes, there is a, a, you know, a surge of, of ecstasy even, but mm-hmm. it, it's, short, it's short-lived. Uh, success doesn't lead to happiness. However, this is where my, a lot of my work uh, uh, lies now, the relationship between these two variables is, is the opposite, meaning it's actually happiness that leads to more success of your increased levels of well-being, uh, even, even by a little bit. I mean, we're not talking radical transformation here. So, you know, 3%, 5% increase in well-being, and you immediately find uh, um, that, that, that you or your colleagues if, or your children are... Um, more creative, more productive, more engaged in the workplace, retention goes up, uh, uh, relationships improve, whether it's romantic relationship, uh, parent-child relationship, or, uh, or teamwork in the workplace. So um, where, where, wherever you look, mm-hmm. you increase levels of, um, of well-being and you, and, and you, and you get more, more success. And success, success broadly defined, so I'm not just talking, you know, material success, even though that, that, that happens too. You know, the mm-hmm. revenues increase, whether it's for individuals or organizations when you increase levels of well-being. So what are some of the things, and I, I can't agree uh, more, Dr. Tal, about you know, where in a, in a society that moved into consumerism that it just becomes empty. It becomes mm-hmm. empty. There's just, you just can't get enough stuff to be able to kind of maintain this happiness coefficient or place. So what's the shift? What are the things that the listeners can now consider from your research to move into this happiness place? What are the choices? What are the strategies? What are the things that we do? Yeah. So, so let let me just share a few examples. So the first one is um, uh, what I call the paradox of, uh, of happiness. And that is that uh, the first step that we need to take if we want to experience more happiness is to allow in unhappiness. Mm. You know, there's, a, there's a common misconception uh, among many people and people who approach me that, that being happy means being happy all the time or that when, when they become experts in happiness, uh, they'll, they'll be happy all the time. That just doesn't exist. I mean, there are, there are only two kinds of people who don't experience painful emotions such as anger or sadness or uh, anxiety or, or fear uh, or jealousy. Uh, two kinds of people. The first kind are the psychopaths. Mm. And the second kind are... We have a lot of those listeners, so... No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the second kind, uh, of which you also don't have many, are dead people. 
So, um, you know, so, so if you experience painful emotions at times, it's actually a good sign. It means you're not a psychopath and you're alive. Mm. Uh, a, good, a good place to start. Welcome um, to life. Yeah, exactly. It's that, you know, it reminds me, so many of my students, especially the young ones, you know, the 18, 19-year-olds, um, after about a month into the course or, or, or even a few weeks, couple of weeks, they say, you know, Tom, we really like positive psychology and we, you know, we want to do the, uh, this, uh, you know, for the rest of our college career, maybe even beyond, um, but we're really concerned. And I ask them, you know, why are you concerned? And they say, well, you see, um, you talk about the importance of hardship and, and failure, you know, how that builds resilience and so on. Uh, but what if we become so good at positive psychology that we don't experience the hardship and, and difficulties and, um, and then how are we going to grow and, and learn? And my answer to them is always the same. My answer to them is don't worry. You know, life will take care of you. Life always <laughs> takes care of us, right? <laughs> so um, so the, the question is not whether or not we'll experience hardship. The question is how we'll deal with it. And, um, and perhaps the best, not perhaps the best way of dealing with it, at least um, when we first encounter it, is to accept the pain, to, to embrace the, um, the, the hardship. Um, and then after we embrace it and really fully accept to it, you know, even I, you know, the, the word that I've been using more and more and I'm, I, I stand fully behind is we surrender to it. And not surrender to it in the sense of, okay, so it happened, there's nothing I'm ever going to do. No, accept it, fully accept that it's part of, of, of being human. We talk about the right. permission to be human. And then ask, what is the most appropriate course of action? Uh, but that's only after really accepting the fact that it's, that it's natural and that it's fine to experience it. So this is the first thing, that first step to, to happiness is allowing in unhappiness. Um, well, one, no, of the things, one of the things, Tal, that you also teach, you talk about mindfulness. Is this kind of linked to that as well in your work around that? Yeah, good. V very much so. So, you know, mindfulness, first of all, in and of itself contributes to happiness. Um, it actually quite literally, not metaphorically, changes the way our brain functions. Um, it, it changes the shape of our neural pathways and, and in, in, in a very, um, in, in a positive way, making us more resilient and more susceptible to pleasurable emotions. Um, in addition, what, what mindfulness is, mindfulness is surrendering to the present moment. It's about acceptance. And that, mm. uh, that contributes to happiness on, um, because of that as well. So that's something else. Another, um, another intervention that contributes to happiness is a physical exercise. More and more work, and again, I'm not exaggerating when I say that every day I get something in the mail about the impact of physical exercise, whether it's for physical health, for, for mental health. Um, you know, we weren't born to be sedentary. We were born to, to run after an antelope for lunch or run away from a lion so that we don't become lunch. We were made to gather, to, to move around, to lift things up. Um, whereas today, we're sitting in front of our computers or in, in meetings, and, and that's okay, but it's not okay if we do it for, you know, 14 hours a day. We pay a very high price. So regular physical exercises, as little as um, 30 minutes three times a week, can lead uh, to the same impact as our most powerful psychiatric medication. In fact, working in the same way, releasing a, a norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, you know, these, these are your feel-good chemicals. 
Well, as a health coach, Tal, I couldn't agree more. Huh? We have a wellness assessment. Right. I have a diploma in nutrition and genetics. And I get that where we just aren't active enough. We're not doing our steps. Or now you have, you know, eye hit or high intensity interval training or some of these other ones. But thank you for confirming for everybody that's listening here that just being active is going to help me yeah. to be to feel better, to... Yeah, and you know, recent research research showed that it's not even just the exercise, it's the movement. So, you know, getting up from our seat every 20 minutes or or 30 minutes um, is is very important. More and more doctors, uh, as you know, are talking about sitting as the new smoking. Mm. And and, you know, they're not not using this metaphor lightly. You know, they mean it. Um, So so it's physical exercise. Uh, Additionally... Probably the most um, or the best known research within the field of positive psychology is on gratitude. So, you know, it turns out the research uh, shows that Oprah was right. Keeping a gratitude journal helps. Um, People who do that on a regular basis and regular basis can be every day. But even if it's only once a week, benefit psychologically as well as um, physiologically. So our immune system is actually stronger if we Mm. express gratitude on a regular basis. And by the way, there's also work that uh, confirms this in the organization. So work by Teresa Amabile, Harvard Business School, on uh, the progress principle. Shows that people who focus on the progress that they made during the day, you know, whether it was writing a report or having a good meeting uh, at work or getting a new client, whatever, they, um, they benefit. Um, they become more creative and more productive overall. Mm. Now, when you were working with your students and you wanted them to do this gratitude process, did you have any sort of specific way that you taught them to embrace Mm. this piece? Yes, um, a a few ways. So one way is just, okay, just experience, experiment with it, you know, every night before going to sleep, take two minutes to write down and visualize the things for which you're grateful. And it could be, Big things like uh, God or family or little things like, you know, nice uh, meal that I had uh, or, or anything else. Um, they did it every night. The other thing, and this is a very powerful intervention that I don't just recommend my students, I also recommend my clients in, in organizations, is to write a gratitude letter and follow it up with a gratitude visit. This is an exercise that was devised by Marty Seligman from the University of Pennsylvania. And the impact of it is mind-boggling. So students write it to their parents, uh, employees write it to their colleagues or boss uh, or partner. And the impact of writing it first Mm -hmm. and then delivering it and reading it to the other person, what it does to the individual, to the relation, to both individuals and to the relationship is is really nothing short of uh, miraculous. Mm. Now, it doesn't have to be long. It just and has no, to be pointed. It has to be heartfelt. This is the key. You know, really, what, what, what are you, in, in, in what ways am I grateful to you? How are you making my life better? And to, to write about it and be specific. It's not just a, you know, a thank you for uh, coming to my uh, wedding kind of letter. It's a, it's a, it's a heartfelt letter. Mm. Well, interesting enough, Martin's work on learned optimism is an approved or permission-based chapter in my latest book, 
living on mm-hmm. purpose. So uh, Martin's work is amazing. It is. It is very important work. Mm. Well, thank you for that. So writing a letter, gratitude, and it doesn't matter who it's to as long as it's heartfelt, it's real, it's yeah. authentic. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing is that Sonia Lubomirsky, who teaches at UC Riverside, has shown that even if we write a, a letter, a heartfelt letter, to someone who's no longer alive, uh, um, obviously then we don't read it to them, um, we, we still benefit a great deal from the, from the experience. What do you think is going on um, physiologically and psychologically for us when we do this work and and get into this gratitude or appreciation or thankfulness? Yeah, good. That's a very important question because one of the things that many people ask or or wonder is how is it that two minutes at night can can have such an impact Mm. on your your life as a whole, which which it does, or just one letter, how can it affect you so much? And, And the answer is that you know, if I do the gratitude exercise on a regular basis, it changes the way I look at the world because it's not just those two minutes, but it's the following day when I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to write this in my gratitude journal or, what am, or asking, you, know, you talked about the importance of, of the questions that we ask, asking, what am I going to write tonight? And the minute I ask it, you know, so right now I'm sitting, you know, looking uh, outside my window. I just asked this question and suddenly the world has become more beautiful because I know that tonight I'm also going to write about um, you know, the uh, beautiful trees that I can see from my window. So um, it, it changes our mindset. And what it does is it's the antidote to a lot of the things that we are, a lot of the information that we're bombarded mm. by on a day-to-day basis. So you, know, you open the newspaper, you know, the TV, or, um, you usually see bad news. Uh, and that has an impact on us. You know, research by Michelle uh, Gellin, who, uh, who was a, um, a news anchor turned positive psychologist, uh, shows that eight minutes of consuming news a day uh, in the morning affect, negatively affects our entire day. Mm. Uh, so in many ways, that those two minutes of uh, gratitude are an antidote uh, to that. They, they help us ask different, uh, a very different question and focus on very different things. And when we focus on different things, that because of the connection to mind and body, um, that also um, strengthens our, our, our immune system. So you know, the, we're, we're, we, we, get, we get sick when we're stressed. You know, we get sick when, when, when something is weighing on us mm. psychologically. Our um, immunity system is built when we are more positive, we're more, exactly. we have more thankfulness. So this idea of input equaling output is real. You know, it's real and, um, and, and it's important that we recognize it uh, because, uh, you know, there's a, there are a lot of studies in psychology, a lot of them done by one of my mentors, uh, Alan Langer, showing how um, our environment uh, affects us. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, I'm sure some of the, the listeners are familiar with, with a study where Alan Langer uh, took a group of elderly men, 75 years and above, and put them in an environment that, this was back in 1979, put them in an environment that um, basically was identical to 1959. So 1959 songs, 1959 magazines, they were also asked to address one another as if it was 1959. 
Uh, so if there were teachers before retirement, there were teachers then. So as if, and, and as if world. And, um, and she, they spend a week in that uh, 1959 world, uh, 20 years um, younger, essentially. And their physiology changed, their psychology changed. They became more independent, whether it's by their self-report or by their family's report when they went home. They actually looked younger. So there were pictures that, that were evaluated by people who did not know what they had gone through. The pictures of after, they were three years younger. They actually could lift more weight. They were stronger. They were more flexible um, because they put themselves in a more, um, uh, in, in a more positive environment where, where they were health, uh, you know, healthier, stronger, younger. Wow. Well, it's interesting, Tal, you know, I've been in this space now for 30 years, but when our kids were younger, five and six, we actually canceled our TV. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have cable in the house for 20 years. Wow. And one of them was is that the addiction that would happen when you turn the news on, let's say at six o'clock and everybody's watching dinner. First of all, it wasn't relationship building, but second of all, it just drained. And it seemed that once you got into it, and then, of course, CNN came on the line and 24-hour news, it just seemed that you couldn't turn it off. So we said the only way to do that was to cancel the whole thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I hear you. We didn't cancel, but uh, I mean, they didn't have TV for the first few years of, my li- of, our, of their lives. Now they do, but we strictly limit screen time. You know, one of, uh, one of the lines of work that I'm very involved with, and I'm on the board of, uh, of uh, one of the lo- uh, biggest addiction centers in the world. And, you know, the number one addiction today is uh, no longer drugs, it's not alcohol, it's not gambling. Number one addiction by far, screens. Mm. And uh, and specifically three things. Uh, It's uh, social media, pornography, and games. Mm. Um, And and these uh, these addictions are are sinister, you know, as uh, as sinister as some of our, you know, worst addictions with... uh, with, with, with very negative uh, implications, both physiologically and, and, and psychologically. And everybody has a screen now. So the access to it, the ability to, well, there's no, there's no resistance to finding it because it's everywhere, right? It's exactly. Part of, you know, it's part of it. One of the tips that, that, that I give and, and obviously apply to my life is, is I tell people, is I ask people first, you know, what's the first thing that you reach for when you open your eyes in the morning? And uh, it's, uh, it's very rarely, if ever, you know, my partner sleeping next to me, unless they're on, on their honeymoon. Um, it's, well, even if they're in their honeymoon, it's usually the, the phone. The mm-hmm. phone to, so, so I tell them, put the phone away. Don't have it next to you um, so that you can reach uh, to something else or do something better. You know, meditate, take three deep breaths before you get up. Um, we, have to, we have to curb our um, our enthusiasm for the screen. I was we do some work in China, and, and one of the things that came out of there. Now this is almost uh, 18 months old, but it was they said that 400 million Chinese were now addicted to the screen. Mm. So yes. uh, diagnosed. So that that's that's a lot of people. <laughs> that's more than people. the entire population of the U.S. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I'm, sure, so, I'm sure that I'm sure that number is growing leaps and bounds all, all over the world. Uh, unfortunately, and of course, people that make games—that's what they like. That they want you to be uh, part of that. Now, and, Cal, and, we have. Go ahead. 
Yeah, and j- just one thing about that to, to realize just how, how dangerous that is. Um, but before I go there, I'm not against social media. I think social media is wonderful. Um, however, the key is moderation. Um, so there was research done recently by uh, Jean Twenge, and, and uh, she's at uh, UCSD. And every five years, there's data coming out on the mental health of, uh, of teenagers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every five years relative to the you know, five years ago, they compare and there's usually, you know, 1% difference, 2% difference up or down. Well, this time recently came out um, levels of um, loneliness, uh, sorry, levels of depression and loneliness that are associated went up by over 30%. Suicide mm-hmm. rates went up by over 30%. Um, and when, when Jean Twenge uh, looked at the data closely, uh, looked at the data, she attributed to, uh, and I quote, the ascendance of the smartphone. Mm. It's insidious, isn't it? It is. So control, <laughs> manage Mod- that. Moderation. 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 Now, we only have about five minutes left, pal. Time went so quickly, and you're such a brilliant guest, and so I just love everything that you're doing. What can you share with the guests in the next five minutes that really can transform their lives beyond what you've done so far? Anything out of the new book around happiness that I can take ownership or I can you know, share with my team? The most important thing to think about, and I think that this for me is, is a sort of a unifying theory of, of a lot of the work that is out there, is this idea of connection. And, um, you know, you can, take, uh, you can take the idea of connection to, uh, on various levels. First of all, connection, this is work that you do a lot of, connection to a, to, to, to a sense of meaning, to a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, for some people, it's connection to, uh, to, to God or to... Uh, to an organization that, 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 that does good in the world, uh, to a cause. But having this connection to, to something that is meaningful and important, uh, that, that's key. Now, that thing doesn't have to be grandiose. I mean, there's a lot of work by the likes of um, William Damon and, and uh, uh, as well as Viktor Frankl, uh, who distinguish mm-hmm. between the meaning of life and the meaning in life. So the meaning of life, yes, that's the grand uh, goal, the grand objective. Why am I here? Uh, the meaning in life is finding meaning in the, in the day-to-day. But regardless, whether it's the meaning of life or in life, it's about a connection. Um, so, so that's one uh, type of connection. The second type of connection is connection to other people. Uh, the number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. Uh, so again, I'm sure some of the listeners are familiar with the uh, Harvard uh, study where they followed Harvard graduates as well as community members for 75 years from the age of mm. 18, essentially for the rest of their lives, at least for most of them. And, um, and one thing that they, that they found, and they looked at the millions of data points over those, those years, very extensive study, one predictor of both health and happiness relationships. And relationships, it actually didn't matter what kind of relationship. So it could be romantic rela- uh, a romantic relationship that you know, this stood the test of time, um, or it could be uh, close friends, 
or it could be uh, colleagues whom you know you care about and who care about you. It didn't matter, but but relationships were critical for both health and happiness. Also, we look at it on a national level. The happiest countries in the world are countries like uh, uh, Denmark uh, and uh, and Colombia and Israel and Australia, and um, and the one common element, the only common element among these countries, and the reason why they're a lot happier than countries like the U.S like Germany, like Singapore, um, the reason why they are happier is because of the, Im- the, the import of relationships. Uh, relationships matter. And again, whether it's friendships or family relationships, relationships and real rather than virtual relationships, of course. Yeah, we're not talking about your time on your Facebook Live. No, <laughs> we're no, talking about no. uh, connecting face-to-face, face-to-face with those yes. individuals. By the way, I quoted that study and inserted that into our wellness assessment just this month. So because it was so profound and so long term in that it it contributed, it was one of the number one factors contributing to longevity as well as wellness. Even that, that's exactly right. Um, So so that's connection to other people. And and then there is also connection to, uh, to self. So, um, you know, know yourself, understand what, uh, uh, what you are about. Um, that's, um, that's a critical aspect element of, uh, of, of a happy life. So, you know, do what you, you know, I, I often say, you know, life is, is, is short. It's, mm. it's too short to do what we have to do. It's barely long enough to do what we want to do. Um, right. So be more selective. But for that, we need to understand what is it that, uh, that I really want. You know, I, I thought that computer science is, is what I wanted because, it seemed that way and everyone else thought that way, but, you know, it, it didn't turn out to be that way. Uh, for someone else, uh, you know, they may be um, teaching when, in fact, it's computer science that, they, that, that, that really lights their fire. So n- know yourself, you know, as, mm-hmm. as, as we were told uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, in Absolutely. And that's actually one of the spaces that CRG lives is to help create the highest level of self-awareness. Self-awareness, yes. And, and by the way, and Warren Bennis talks about that a lot in the context of, of, of becoming a leader. Know thyself. Mm. It's critical. Mm, so and, important. So, yeah, important. So, 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 in, so there are three levels of, um, of connection. You know, connection, call it to the transcendent or to purpose. Uh, uh, connection to other people and, and connection to self. And finally, you, know, you mentioned uh, mindfulness and meditation. That is connection to the present moment. And in many ways, connection to the present moment facilitates the other three connections. Because when I'm really present, you know, as Henry Miller uh, once wrote, I can experience, when I'm really present to a blade of grass, I can experience the divine in it. Um, when, I'm, when I'm really present, when around other people, when I truly listen, I'm connecting to them. And, uh, and finally, when, when, I, when I'm present in the here and now, I, I can really read and understand um, my, my wants and needs. I can know myself better, deeper. Mm, you know, it's so profound. Well, Tal, where did the time go? It's like it's already uh, pretty well to the end of our show. So, Tal, and so thank you so much. But if people want to find out more about your work or go on to Amazon to get your book, uh, how might they find out about you? What's what's the site that you'd like to drive everybody to? Well, uh, thank you for that, Ken. And uh, it's uh, talbenshahar.com. 
Can my, you spell that website. out for everybody? Yeah. Oh, it's not self-explanatory? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> well, for us dyslexic, dyslexic people, I'm just <laughs> taking care of them. <laughs> it says T-A-L-B-E-N-S-H-A-H-A-R. That's all one word, talbenshahar.com. And the name of the new book is? The Shortcuts to Happiness. And can they get that on Amazon as well? Uh, yes, it's uh, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and in selected stores. Okay. Tal, uh, uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Any final 30-second uh, clip that you want to leave for the SOS audience? Yeah, sure. Um, so, Ken, you know, tonight is every night. I'll be writing down at least five things for which I'm grateful, and uh, I'm very grateful. And I will certainly write this down tonight for the opportunity of... Uh, being present to your audiences so thank you for that oh well thank you well thank you tal and thank you SOS listeners you know um tal's been very gracious of being on the show he's one of the number one experts in the world and so my encouragement is if you need to learn more uh, listen to the show over and over there's all kinds of tidbits get your journal out and if you haven't don't have one start one tonight just even a piece of paper about what are you really really thankful for know yourself be aware of that and you know what take responsibility for being in caring relationships the best way to find wrench friendships is to be one to be a friend to be able to give to others the other thing is with the show please as a a listener if you can uh, leave some positive comments uh, participate by leaving a review or a ranking of the show And if you can share it and subscribe, that would be much appreciated as well uh, with those people that you care about as well as yourself. So thank you again for taking the most valuable commodity that you have, your time, to join us for today's Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Key. for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.